and a pleasant good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. My name is Sam Lebowitz, and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely and talented co-host, Jack Hendon. Jack, how are we doing on this lovely Monday night? I'm chilling. I'm chilling. It's good to be here. Uh, I'm very happy we're not unpacking a series with the Yankees, but we do have a little bit of unpacking in advance to do or packing up in advance, so I'll leave that over to you. Yeah, there's plenty to talk about today, but first, this podcast, this is the inaugural episode of the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, which is Metzmerized Online's new flagship podcast headed up by us, two college-age kids who just want to talk about the Mets. So let's talk about the Mets, Jack, mm-hmm. and let's talk about how COVID-19 and this prolonged pandemic that we've been living through for the past six months took away baseball from us this weekend as the Mets were uh, slammed with not one, but two positive cases, one by a position player and one by a coach. Still don't know those names, probably won't know those names, at least officially. On Thursday night, right before the series finale in Miami, the Mets were looking for the sweep. And they're going to have to make those games up this week when the Marlins head into town starting tomorrow. Uh, everyone flew back from Miami that night, with the exception of the two players, or the two people who had tested positive, and four people who were deemed to have been in close contact with those positive cases. And as of right now, no other positive cases for the Mets besides those two, which is good news, Jack. Mm-hmm. Really good. Definitely thought it could have been worse, but crisis, at least for now, has been averted. Uh, so we can get right back to right back to baseball. Yay! Yeah. Only four games that the Mets are going to have to make up. They missed the finale in Miami on Thursday, and they missed all three games against the Yankees at Citi Field uh, this weekend. But they're, as the schedule would have it, they get pretty lucky because they're going to play the Marlins again and then the Yankees again. So as we know right now, and the Mets announced this today, they're going to be playing three doubleheaders between now and next Sunday, which means over the next six days, they're going to be playing nine games. Nice. It's about uh, 69 innings exactly, uh, assuming we don't get any extras. But it's kind of amazing that, we're about to go. I mean, looking at the schedule right now, we have 34 games left. And by the time this week is over, uh, nearly a third of those games are just going to be gone. We're going to be right down to 25, which is kind of uh, kind of exciting, kind of terrifying, given how close we are to the deadline. But we'll obviously get into that. We have a lot of fun stuff on, uh, on tap tonight. We're going to be yeah. talking a little bit more about the schedule. We're going to be going through... Uh, what this means for the pitching staff, rotation, and bullpen, because this will definitely be taxing uh, for everyone involved. We're going to talk trade deadline a little bit as we sort of look ahead to the pseudo-competitive future. Uh, And, you know, especially given the fact that that trade deadline comes up on the weekend and we have a series with the Yankees, there's going to be a lot of fun stuff to go through there as we prepare for a five-game series. Um... Last five-game series we had with the Yankees. Uh, Sam, you must have been like, what, like four or five months old, and it was losing effort, right? I mean, it's... it's uh, In 2000, the World Series, that was the last five-game series the Mets and the Yankees played. I was, that was in October, I was 10 months old. Damn uh, it, man. So, yeah, uh, if you're new to the podcast, if you don't follow us on Twitter or whatever, we're pretty young, but yes. we do stick with us throughout this um, so, yeah, for the Mets, it's 34 games with 34 days left in the season before the last day. So 
they do have some off days. These these doubleheaders are going to kind of knock out some of those. But um, we're I think we're excited. There's going to be a lot of Mets baseball this week. Four games against the Marlins. I'm never going to complain about four games against the Marlins. Mm-hmm. And the five games against the Yankees, that's that's scary. I think that if the Mets can win five games this week out of those nine games, I think you call it a win. Um, yeah. Let's hop into the pitching staff right now because when you have yeah. a bunch of doubleheaders in a short period of time, you're going to need more arms. Obviously, the fact that these doubleheaders are going to be seven inning games helps, but you're still going to need to find arms. Mm-hmm. Um, rotation we know is kind of in shambles still we haven't really gotten updates on David Peterson or Michael Walker in terms of when they're going to come back but um, it would look like Jacob deGrom is going to start one of the two games in the doubleheader against the Marlins on Tuesday um, which makes sense considering deGrom was the last Mets starter to start a game uh, last Wednesday in Miami yeah. is that a, is that something they've actually like confirmed yet or are we like hoping for that because like logistically it makes perfect sense to do that i'm just kind of scared that we're gonna give the ball to lugo right away and you know snowball this whole thing with the uh you know the 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 b team of the pitching staff um it i mean it should be Degrom, right i mean there's there's no reason not to do Degrom. i mean Degrom got the last game um rick porcello hasn't actually pitched in like I think like eight or nine days now. So, I mean, theoretically, it would make the most sense to give him uh, that next start. But as far as what happens next, Sam, I mean, do you have any ideas for what we do? Is it how we look? Uh, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's official yet, but I do believe I saw today that the that they said that DeGrom would start one of the two games okay. uh, against the Marlins in the doubleheader. Um, I think besides that, they have to nix the plan of having Steven Matz come out of the rotation for a bit. I think you need him to make a start mm-hmm. uh, this stretch. Um, I don't know if they're going to keep with Seth Lugo in the rotation at some point. He might maybe because he is, you know, he's not stretched out. Perhaps he can get um, a doubleheader start so that because you can kind of deal with the workload in the bullpen a little bit easier. If, mm-hmm. You know, if you get three innings out of Lugo in a doubleheader, you know, in a doubleheader game that's only seven innings. It's kind of, I guess, equal to if he had got five outs or five innings or so in a, in a normal game. Right, um, which is kind of knocking on wood. But it's, you know, I think that the, the move for Luis Rojas should definitely be to save those seven inning games for the pitchers who probably otherwise couldn't go through three innings because you have less cut out for your bullpen in those instances. I mean, we could even see Walker Lockett coming in and making starts if this gets, you know, bad enough. I mean, I personally don't know how ready Lugo or Gesellman is to give you like three, you know, three and a third, three and two thirds innings just yet. We really need like at least two or three of our starters, probably three of them to give you like at least five or six innings to really keep the bullpen well rested. Cause those nine inning games otherwise are going to be a total hell ride. Um, but I mean, yeah, and uh, I mean, you do have kind of reinforcements because with those double headers, you can bring up an extra guy for that day. Right. And they have guys on the 40 man roster, uh, who are in the player pool, like Ariel Hirado, who they had traded from the Rangers earlier this season and Franklin Killame, who, you know, can give you a little bit of length and guys that are not in the 40 man, like personal favorite of mine, Erasmo Ramirez, who I still think we're going to see at some point this season. 
And we really don't know where David Peterson and Michael Walker are. It doesn't look like they're going to be here for this series, but they're both eligible to come off uh, mm-hmm. at any point now. I think they're both their 10 days are up for both of them. So maybe we see them this weekend against the Yankees. I know Brody alluded to both of them as, and Jake Marisnik, we haven't heard from him in a while, as potential quote-unquote trade deadline acquisition types if they come back healthy, which is a narrative the Mets have been pushing for like 20 years about injured guys around the deadline. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of some question marks, but the team just needs pitching. Really, it's it's all hands on deck for this stretch because Mm -hmm. they're – stretched pretty thin and the other variable is that we don't really know how the starting pitchers and the relievers for that matter are going to fare when they come out of this kind of quarantine period we don't know if they've been able to throw it all um and pitchers are creatures of habit and Mm -hmm. don't really know what their arms are going to be like even after three or four days off that they wouldn't normally have right so we don't know how they're going to look once this quarantine period's over so i'm for those reasons i'm honestly even more afraid of what happens when, you know, you take someone like Lugo or Gesellman who really hasn't shown you that they can give you more than three, four innings at any point in the last three and a half years and put them in the rotation. I don't see why you wouldn't just put them back in the bullpen and maybe just grind it out with Steven Matz and hope that he has something to give the Marlins. I mean, it is the Marlins, you know, it's not a team that, you know, you need to hide a struggling pitcher from. I'd much rather have someone who's just going to give you innings. Maybe that's where Chase and Shreve comes in. But the last thing I want is in the fourth inning of one of these games to see, like, you know, Dylan Batances starting a, a conga line of relief pitchers where, you know, Rojas is using, like, three or four of them. Because, honestly, like, that's just kind of a, you know, each guy that you go through, at least as I've noticed it in these games, each reliever that you use inning by inning, you're, like, really running the risk until your offense breaks the thing open of, of just kind of giving away a lead. Yeah. And I definitely think that there's really, I mean, there's, there's not a great amount of depth in this bullpen. I mean, the only guy who's really, there's only really two guys who I feel like have done it consistently or at least semi consistently in high leverage situations that's this year. And that's Edwin Diaz, who has at times looked unhittable, like video game level Edwin Diaz, like he did, um, struck out four batters in a row in the Mets last game in Miami after, unfortunately, walking Logan Forsyth to tie the game. And then the other guy is Justin Wilson, who I think has been a godsend for this team when he's been healthy on the Mets. Um, besides that, Familia's been meh. Uh, Drew Smith's been good, but they, they just brought him back. He hasn't pitched since he's been back up, or he has once maybe. Um, Brad Brock's not there yet. Dylan Batances looks goddamn terrible. And... I mean, we like Jared Hughes, but is he that guy yet? I don't really know. I do think that they should bring up like a Killame because yeah. they need a guy who can have, who can give you some length in that bullpen. Um, if it's not Killame, I mean, throw Walker Lockett in the bullpen if he's not going to be starting games, but I assume he'll get a start this week. I feel like he's the next guy up in the rotation. Throwing out guys like like Killame and, and uh, Lockett against the Yankees is a very – very scary situation. It feels like tempting fate. Yeah. If we get, I mean, we could get to a point, honestly, where we're like one game into that series and we're already out of like rested, competent pitchers. And like at that point, I hate to, you know, be the one who like brings this up because 
you know, this is the Yankees. This is kind of Fred Wilpon's team. And he, you know, how he feels about playing the Yankees and competing with the Yankees. I almost feel like that's a, a, a perfect scenario where the team has their back to the wall. At that point, your competitive, you know, chances are sort of slipping because you're like just drilling through your, your, your staff halfway through a season. That's almost a perfect time for the Mets to do what the Phillies have done. And that's just trade like, you know, Thomas Zapucky or, 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 you know, Ali Sanchez or someone in that, you know, player pool that we probably shouldn't be trading in this kind of situation for another reliever, for a long reliever, for a back end starter. I mean, that deadline is getting closer and closer, Sam. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared because Brody loves making, you know, the win now deals. He loves looking at yellow lights and like thinking they're green and just pulling the trigger. And even though he says during, you know, he said it today during the press conferences that, you know, he was going to, you know, be very careful. But that's almost like I feel like that's every GM's answer right now because no one really wants to sell their position. Uh, No one, you know, there aren't really any sellers right now. But, you know, yeah, buyer's market. I got it. Excellent transition there from one topic to the next. We love segues here on the podcast. And talking about, segue, guys. <laughs> talking about the trade deadline coming up, it's, it's Monday the 31st at 4 p.m., a month later than it would be in a, in a normal season. And, I mean, Brody talked to the media earlier today, and the inclination that I feel like a lot of people got is that basically he was saying we're not looking to add pieces right now. Because he said stuff about Peterson and Wacom and Riznik coming off the aisle could be like those kind of trade deadline acquisitions, which is something they've said about Cespedes in the past. He was hurt, which never really happened, um, which I feel like is code for we're not looking to take on any salary, mm-hmm. especially given the state of the team's financials heading into the sale. Yeah. I think that would make a lot of sense that they're not looking to add salary. But at the same time, I could also see the Wilpons being so desperate to you know put together a winning team in their last season owning the team and kind of leaving a good taste in fans mouths that they're you know they go to Brody this week especially if they take like three out of four from these Marlins heading into the Yankee series and just say pull the trigger trade for Kevin Gossman I don't care if it takes Matt Allen or Francisco Alvarez trade for Dylan Bundy do something to get this team just a little bit higher so that this Yankee series maybe isn't as stressful um, or, or just so that they make the playoffs or something. Yeah. So we can take two out of five from the Yankees and still have a chance for the other middling and all these teams really. Cause that's what this is going to be. This is a, you know, this is the Braves division more or less, but you know, the Marlins are already looking more and more like the Marlins. We remembered coming into the season, the Phillies can't get out of their own way, even though they're making trades, it's not really looking good for them so far. You know, the Nationals haven't really put together that definitive winning streak yet, and they don't really have as much time as they did last year to make that happen. I, You know, I almost feel like just going against the grain for a second and going against the competitive window because, you know, they're really – how far do you get in this thing before you run into the Dodgers or the Cubs? It's I – mean, why, why don't they just sell? I mean, why don't they just take advantage of the fact that it's such a buyer's market? We saw the Phillies give up – I mean, Nick Pavetta is not, you know, it's it's not like Anthony K. Simeon Woods Richardson level give up, but it's also like, you know, they gave up a 27 year old pitcher and they gave up a, a single A A plus 
you know, starter who so far is pretty good numbers in Connor Siebold, and they're only getting like, you know, a month of Brandon Workman and then like a, a year and a half of Heath Hembry. That was a pretty that was a, a, a pretty extensive giveaway for two relievers. I mean, if the Mets can get that kind of value for like a Rick Porcello, I mean, that's probably where the buck stops as far as the veteran contracts, given Ramos's value, Batances's value, Familia's value. Like, you get someone for Rick Porcello, I mean, you, why wouldn't you just do it? Why wouldn't you just swallow your pride and understand that this is a season that, best case scenario, you run away with the second spot and then lose in the playoffs? Why wouldn't you just, with that in mind, understand that it, like, it, it really isn't worth it? And a lot of teams are still convinced that it absolutely is worth it. Um, only thing standing in the way is just that, like, that, that you know, there's not a lot of value there anyway. I don't know if you have any ideas, but yeah, I I do think that if there's a guy they could sell, it's it's Porcello. Maybe if he gives you one more good start, because he's really only had like one legitimately good start so far this season. The rest have been either mediocre or bad, and that was the one start when he he uh, outdueled. Technically, he outdueled Max Scherzer, who left that game after one inning. <laughs> he really outdueled Eric Fetty, but. Um, the only seven inning start of the year right there for the entire team. Yeah. And it's Rick Porcello. And he's also the only starter who hasn't missed a turn in the rotation yet, which is also true. Odd to say, but I I just got to say that I don't think that, you know, let's look at the team for a second. This team is a a game under 500. You're heading into four against the Marlins. You got to take advantage of that right now. Best case scenario, you're heading into that Yankee season, the Yankees series, 17 and 14. And worst case scenario, after that point, you're leaving the Yankees series, what, 17 and 19, which is still very doable in a 16-game playoff mm-hmm. situation. That's if they lose all five games in, in, in Yankee Stadium. But so I like this team doesn't have a ton of starting pitching anyways. If they really think they have a shot, and I do think they do have a shot, because the NL, besides the 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 Braves in the East is wide open. Yeah. Because they have a shot at getting in. There's no doubt they have a shot at getting in. I mean, there are so many teams right now that are in the exact same spot the Mets are in. It's just about what happens after that, if you think it's sustainable, right. you know? It's probably not sustainable. This team isn't that good. Um, but even if they make the playoffs and they run into uh, the Cubs, the Braves, the Dodgers, or whatever – you still got to put your best foot forward, and I don't think you're doing that if you're trading like your third best starting pitcher. I think it'd be a different story yeah. completely if you had Marcus Stroman or if you had Noah Syndergaard or if you knew what you were getting when and if Michael Walker and David Peterson comes back, but you just don't know that. And Peterson, or, um, Porcello rather, even though he hasn't necessarily been good, he's still been a guy who you can reliably get five innings, six innings out of every fifth day. And I think that in and of itself is valuable to this team if they are going to stay competitive, even if they're a 500 team, they could sneak in as a 500 team as a 7 or an 8 seed. I do think that if there's a guy on this roster who has the value that you can trade, and I know this is not a very popular opinion, it's 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 Dom Smith. It's Dom Smith. I, I don't want them to trade Dom. I really don't want them to trade Dom. I love Dom Smith. He's my big uh, 
baseball bat swinging gentleman. I love him. He's such a good dude, and he's so good for this roster, and he's such a key component to the team's chemistry, and the fan base adores him, and he's been so, so good this year. But if there's a player on this roster that their value's up and is maybe slightly uh, expendable, I think it's Dom. He doesn't really have a place on this roster. Let's be real. He's not going to start over Pete until Pete puts together a long stretch in which he's not hitting, which he's already started to hit a little bit. You can't really put him in left field for any extended period of time because he's just not good out there. And you're not going to DH him over like a Robinson Cano because obviously Robinson Cano is owed a crap ton of money. And he's not going to play second base when he's back from this groin injury that he had. So Dom, as, as much as they're trying to find playing time for him, and as much as it's worked out offensively, if there's a team out there that with this league-wide DH, whether it's an American League team or a National League team, that's trying to add a little more offense, uh, a team that comes to mind for me is the A's, if they just want to go to another level, because they're already very good. They're the one seed in the American League as we speak right now. Uh, I feel like the Mets can't not listen if teams are knocking on the door about Dom Smith. Again, I don't want it to happen. I want him to be right. on the- but yeah, I, the thing about it is, like, I think Mark Feinsand wrote an article for MLB.com a while back, like earlier this weekend, maybe, that basically cited, like, the seven players most likely to get dealt. I mean, the, the only hitter I remember from this list is, like, Jonathan Scope on the Tigers. You could probably command a pretty good market for Dom Smith. The idea of trading Dom Smith kind of, like, it kind of makes me sick, and it kind of makes me upset that, like, this is the kind of like asset we need to get off of our books if we actually want to improve our farm system and improve our prospects for the future. But I mean, he would easily command like a a pretty good return, which is, you know, it's, it's kind of a double edged sword because I really, really love Dom Smith. Um, uh, These teams, teams that do want to make trades, they can only trade players that are in their player pool. So, And a lot of teams have kind of put some pretty good prospects in their player pool because from a player development standard um, standpoint, rather, you want to have your prospects getting reps. You don't want to lose those reps. I mean, the Mets did it a couple weeks ago with Matt Allen and Francisco Alvarez, who were two of their top five prospects, one a pitcher, one a catcher. And if you're looking purely at a player development standpoint, that's a really good thing to do because you don't want them to lose time, especially a young guy like Alvarez who's still in his teens. Right. Um, So let me just off of that ask you this, because we do have guys that we can trade if we want to, like, buy in. Is there any player right now that you're willing to give up? Maybe not an Allen or or, or Alvarez, but maybe someone, I think, a little little bit lesser who you'd probably need to add to your pool. I mean, is there any player right now, though, that you're, like— really sold on as far as dealing guys to, to win now, at least to have a better chance of winning, like actually winning once you get to that playoff bracket and you're playing winning teams? Yeah, I, I just want to say that there's not a single player uh, that's really on the market right now that I would trade either of those guys for. Yeah. That would be debilitating towards this farm system. Um, there, are, there are a few interesting names up out there i know that the angels are looking to sell high on dylan bundy because the angels even though they have some really fun players uh cannot get out of their own way they have mm-hmm. they have the same record as the red sox coming into today um but i don't really know if i buy bundy as a breakout guy as a sustained breakout guy 
But I do kind of like Kevin Gossman for the Giants. I've, I've He's watched, good, man. watched the pitch a little bit this year, and the velocity's back up there. Gossman had a pretty decent uh, prospect pedigree when he was coming up with the Orioles, but he's up to 97-plus. I know he's hit 99 a handful of times this year. Uh, he's got some good arm side run on that fastball. Uh, he throws this little splitter thing as like a secondary pitch. There's good stuff there. Yeah. Kind of like a, a, a slightly, he's a little bit younger than some of the veteran guys in the market, as is Bundy, theoretically. But um, with Gossman, I just think Gossman's stuff plays up way more than Bundy's. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, you kind of, if you were to buy in, this would be like the perfect time. You have that series with the Yankees coming up. You're going to need someone. I mean, after Jacob deGrom and maybe... Uh, if David Peterson is in the equation, maybe David Peterson. I don't really trust any of our pitchers to to face this team, however banged up it is. I mean, you have potentially Aaron Judge by the end of this week. You definitely have Clint Frazier, unless the Yankees just option him for no reason again. But he's slugging 700. I don't really know how you justify that at this point. Um, if you want to like come out of this series alive, you're really going to need like a, a legitimate pitching performance. And if you can't get that, man, you're really going to need an offense. And I think this is a good point for us to kind of go into that because the Mets offense, despite what Tom Smith has been giving you, despite, you know, the hot streaks we've seen from Luis Guillorme and Robinson Cano, and also despite what we've seen from Brandon Nimmo, there's kind of this chasm where – in that offense, when they get guys in scoring position, I'll just give you a stat right now that I took the umbrage of looking up. Uh, I really hate that I found this. We have the second most played appearances of any team in the major leagues with runners in scoring position. So we put a lot of guys in scoring position. The only team that has put more in is Houston, and yet we still have the second lowest average in all of baseball. It's 211, and our OPS is 635. That's actually the lowest. Like, someone's going to need to, like, just rip the shirt off of this thing and, and, and start driving in runs. Because right yeah. now it's only Dom. Dom's the only one who's batting over 250 with men in scoring position. And you have these one-dimensional players, too. I mean, you have Hamilton. You have Wilson Ramos. I mean, they're probably going to get, like, a—, a, a Handsome amount of playing time in this series. I don't, I mean, I don't really know how this offense is going to react just yet without a miracle or at least some miraculous breakout performance. No, yeah, this offense, like you said, that stat is so telling to exactly what's been the issue with this team because we know that they have good offensive players and we know that they've had some good offensive performances this year. Obviously, Conforto has been really good this year, besides just Dom Smith, who's been on, on another level this year, but. They again, like that's insane. They have this, the most played appearances in the National League with runners in scoring position in the National League, and they are the worst team at hitting with runners in scoring position in baseball. Yeah, that's so telling, and it, it, it's kind of blatant if you've been watching this team day in and day out. They just can't get a big hit to save their life. It feels like at least half of their losses have been games where like it was close. Maybe the Mets had a lead early on, and then with a pitcher on the ropes and guys in scoring position in, say, the fifth or sixth inning, they just kind of, like, couldn't, couldn't, you know, pull the trigger on the thing. And just at that point, the bullpen does what the bullpen always does. I mean, it's—they keep, like—they keep losing winnable games, and it's almost entirely because they can't stop putting the ball on the ground or striking out when there's a guy 90 feet away. Right, and, I mean, we can— 
I mean, hopefully this, it's probably best case scenario. It's probably extremely optimistic to even think that this is a possibility, but maybe this five game or five day stretch in which they're not playing is kind of almost a hard reset for the team mentally and physically. Uh, maybe this is what gets Jeff McNeil off the schneid. Maybe he, you know, this is a, a few days off can finally get him back uh, physically to where he needs to be. Cause clearly uh, if you, you just needed to watch the guy, he's not playing a hundred percent. He just isn't healthy right now. So I don't know if the knee is going to be back after these few days off, but I mean, hopefully cause the Mets need him. He hasn't done anything this year. Even when he was getting his base hits before he got hurt, he still wasn't hitting for power. They need him to hit for power again. Yeah. Like last season, maybe not, second half Jeff McNeil, but they at least need first half Jeff McNeil and have him driving balls in the gaps. Yeah. Um, and if you can't get him, you need to turn on one of uh, Jimenez or, or, or Rosario because both of those guys right now are slowly like devolving into just singles hitters. I mean, Andres is young and he's only been here a little while. Like I, I, I have faith that he will sort of get back into a rhythm once he's more used to pitching as pitching has gotten used to him. But on the, you know, on the other side of it, it's like, you know, Guillaume is now your only infielder who hits. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the good things about Guillaume kind of having a bit of a breakout here is that it made Brian Dozier expendable, and, and they cut Brian Dozier, which is uh, great. And we'll talk about more random Mets in a second, but just one kind of last point on this upcoming series with the Yankees is that, first of all, the Yankees are kind of banged up themselves. The pitching staff is not in great shape behind Derek Cole. Um, they have Zach Britton on the shelf. James Paxton has been hurt this year. Uh, and then the offense with no judge, no DJ LeMahieu, no Glaber, no Stanton. Um, and then you're, if you're facing, this is still a very good Yankees team. I mean, it, it definitely helps when your superstar right fielder goes on the, the injured list and you can have his replacement slug nearly 700. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe with some of these left-handed hitters that the Mets have that are struggling like McNeil and Jimenez or, or what have you, there's rarely a better medics, medication for left-handed hitters than getting five games at Yankee Stadium. Yeah. So who knows what happens uh, in this series? It's a very interesting series because you're looking at a team that, that got hot and then had to sit for five days. Yeah. And, you're look, and they're facing a very, very good yet very, very hurt Yankees team. You're going to probably need to pick it all up after that. You know, you're going to need to just wail on the Marlins and then hope your offense is prepared for whatever mess your starting rotation leaves you or whatever mess your bullpen creates for you. Because that's, I mean, there's honestly, like, just from our conversations, I don't really know what you do about high leverage spots. It's, yeah, I mean, okay. They just, I think they just got to take care of business against the Marlins. If they do that, it lessens the stress about five games in the Bronx so much because then all you got to do is take two games from the Yankees and it really doesn't hurt you that much. You can lose that series and still be in real good shape as long as you do what you need to do against the Fish. If you go in and you split those four games against the Marlins or, God forbid, you lose that series, that puts a lot of pressure on this team heading into the weekend in a very stressful situation, regardless of who they were playing, five games in a three-game span is hard for Major League Baseball players, and it's something they rarely, if ever, have to do. And really, when it gets down to it, they just got to take care of business in the middle of the week, hosting the Marlins, 
and kind of let the stress roll off them and just play their game against the Yankees, knowing that even if they lose a few games, it's not the end of the world. Let's talk about Brian Dozier, or maybe not specifically Brian Dozier. Brian Dozier wound up getting only a handful of at-bats with the Mets. He wound up getting just two hits and 15 at-bats. They released him today. They did release him. They did release him. So he goes on the wall. He's on the mantle. That's a random Met. We got him this year. We have Hunter Strickland. Uh, Are we adding Ryan Cordell? Because he's still technically in the system. Does he count? I don't know if Cordell's quite established as a big leaguer to count as a random Met. He's still in the system. We have Eduardo Nunez on that list, too. Eduardo Nunez. I'm not sure Eduardo even exists. I feel like we haven't gotten an update on him in forever. I think he's, you know, playing the back nine with Jed Lowry somewhere. Um, Jed Lowry. Damn. There's a lot of random guys. Let's do sh- Let's give a shout-out. Let's give a shout-out to some random guys. Sam, you go first. You want to remember? I say we, we remember some guys. That's what we're going to do here on the pod from time to time. We're going to remember some dudes. And... What better team to do it with than an iconic team for remembering some good guys? I'm going to go back to the, the 2009 Mets that preseason some people had picked to win the World Series, and then they wound up putting together one of the worst rosters that they've ever put together because nobody, and I mean nobody, that was good at baseball stayed healthy that year. And 2009 had a distinction for me as really being my first year of covering, or not covering, but following baseball. Covering. <laughs> I'd hope you weren't covering that team. Jesus. I was nine years old. If, if Oh, boy. But that team, uh, they, they had certainly had some names on them. And one of those names is Corey Sullivan. Corey Sullivan, yes. As a nine-year-old dude, as a nine-year-old kid, I thought Corey Sullivan was a dude. Like, low-key. He played 64 games for the Mets. I felt like he was really good and should have played more when I was a kid. But he, he hit two, 250 for the Mets in 157 plate appearances. They so, batted him fifth. He, that team was so bad. He was like bootleg Sean Green. He had a cannon. He, he could throw. Really good outfielder, if my yeah. memory serves correctly. He hit two homers in uh, those, those 64 games. So power, not really his thing. OPS 720, that's Fairly respectable, 93 OPS plus. That's like almost average. Almost. Pretty good. It was like a fairly commendable replacement level player for the Mets as like a 29-year-old who had been up and down with the Rockies for like four years. And then he went to Houston the next year, played 57 games, and then we never heard from him again. But that's who I'm talking about, Corey Sullivan. I'm a big Corey Sullivan guy. And whenever I think about my favorite random Mets of all time, he's, he's like up there for me. So, Jack, who, if you're, if you're going to remember some guys, who, who are you going to shout out? I'm going to shout him out because I can't spell his name. But Doug Mankiewicz, 2005 first baseman Doug Mankiewicz. They missed out on Carlos Doug. People forget, like, the Mets were adamant about trying to get – they really wanted to bring Carlos Delgado into Queens. And they spent a whole offseason before they actually made it happen trying to make it happen. And when it didn't work out and he signed with the Marlins – they actually signed Jeff, uh, uh, Doug Mikavich to a one-year deal. He, uh, he was about as – he was more or less – I mean, he was only 31. It's, it's not really fair to compare him to Adrian Gonzalez, but these were some pretty Adrian Gonzalez numbers. He hit 240. Uh, he slugged 407, and he wasn't one of those guys who, like, 
drew like a substantial amount of walks to like offset it. He bat, you know, he's on base was 322. By the, I mean, he also had trouble staying healthy. By the end of the year, they'd actually kind of like moved on from him. They didn't release him or anything. They kept him around, but Mike Jacobs wound up spelling him. Uh, Mike, not Jewish Jacobs. We, Have you heard this story? Quick, before we get into the Mike Jacobs story, because I know yes. you want to talk about that, I just want to mention real quick, Jack and I did not share who we were going to talk about for our Remembering Some Guys segment today. We and never will. I'm, I'm looking at Doug Mankiewicz's stat line right now on Baseball Reference. We both picked guys that had 93 OPS pluses. <laughs> what the hell? That's so perfect. This is this podcast is going to be electric, folks. We should read. We should change our name to uh, the Guy Whisperers. The Guy Remember Whisperers. Guy Remembers. Well, uh, we'll so work it out. Well, Mike, not Jewish Jacobs. You ever heard the, the the not Jewish story? No, I think before we go into that, though, we should just real quick say and mention that on this day, today being August twenty fourth, Monday night, that we're recording this. On this day in 2005, Mike Jacobs, for the fourth time in his fourth in his four big league games, he homered. In fact, he had two homers on this day in 2005. He did it in Arizona and hit those two home runs off Russ Ortiz and Jose Valverde. The Mets scored 18 and won 18 to four. So tie in to this day in Mets history for Mike Jacobs. Now he I shouldn't have been hitting home runs in the ninth inning, up 12 runs. You know that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty disrespectful. Stat patty. Pretty, uh, yeah, pretty stat patty. It wasn't on a 3-0 pitch, but I, I looked that up. Um, the Mike Jacobs story, though, uh, we can cut this out. We can cut this out if we need to. This is just a – I think it will be funny, though. The Mike Jacobs not – the Mike not Jewish Jacobs story. Uh, it's 2006. The Mets have traded him to the Marlins at this point. The Florida Marlins are doing – it's around this time in the summer, too. I don't think – off the, I don't think it was on August 24th. I don't think we're that lucky. But the Marlins wanted to do Jewish Heritage Night. But I guess their team didn't have any Jewish players. And they just assumed, because of his last name, that Mike Jacobs was Jewish. So they put, like, they put him like on, I think, their shirts for giveaways, for Jewish Heritage giveaways. And then he, had, he didn't even know this was happening. He didn't even know this was happening. He hit, like... I think he went like three for five or something, and they interviewed him after the game. Everyone thought they were going to get like this great, you know, Miami Sentinel storyline about like on Jewish Heritage Night, you know, the lone Marlins Jew like broke out, and they're like, so you know, how important was this night for you? He goes, what? What night? Like, well, it's Jewish Heritage Night, and he was like, oh, that's 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 great, but I'm not Jewish. That's so funny. I've never heard that story. And as a Jewish person myself, that's hilarious. I yes. can't, that is so unbelievably funny. I can't believe I've never heard that story. So Mike Jacobs, lots of Mike J Jacobs tonight on the podcast. But it's not the only significant moment. I know the Jacobs story itself that you just shared isn't exactly from this day specifically. But there, it's not the only thing that we want to talk about from the on this day in Mets history portion because... Today, five years ago, one of the tastiest days in Mets history because it was the day in which David Wright brought himself back into the lineup with thunder, as Gary Cohen said. They hit eight home runs in a game in Philadelphia right with the first one. It was so upper deck shot against uh, Adam Morgan. Oh, man. Travis Darnett, 
The first pitch he saw. First pitch he saw. How After you months away with a spinal condition that little did we know was going to keep yeah. coming back. And I remember this day so vividly because I was a 15-year-old. The team was good. They were exciting to watch for like the first time in my career as a baseball fan. And I was out to dinner with my family following the game on my phone. Jacob deGrom started that game. He kind of wasn't very good against the Phillies that day. No. They fell behind early. It was three. It was like seven to one. They were getting like slapped and they just hit eight homers. They hit eight homers and those homers were right. Travis Darno went 462 feet to dead center. Wilmer Flores hit two. Juan Lagaris hit a home run. Michael Kadir hit a home run, who, by the way, is going to be on the Hall of Fame ballot this year. They shared the first look at the Hall of Fame ballot today. Michael Kadir's on it. Uh, Yoenis Cespedes. Hit a home run, as he often did during that stretch in 2015. And Daniel Murphy hit one, which, as you all, I'm sure, remember, pissed off Philly's third base coach, Larry Boa, to the earth's end. Because this was also the same. Was quick pitched. Yeah. That was great. That was like, they were so, years of watching the Phillies trample us and just Murphy hitting a home run in like a, like 12 to seven game and bat flipping toward the Philly dugout. He really owned the bat flip though. And Robles came out the next inning and like quick pitched with the 98. And like, I think Jeff Francoeur was the guy in the Philly dugout. He was a, Jeff Francoeur was a Philly man, but he, uh, he was very upset about that. And then just Larry Boa, like all four foot, 11 inches of Larry Boa, just like up at the top step of the dugout, just pointing at Murphy, screaming at him, like motioning that he was going to like, he would have thrown at him. It was great. I love when the Phillies get bruised like that. That stretch for a couple of years there when the Mets would just go into Philadelphia and just be on the Phillies, man. They would hit so many homers when they went to Citizens Bank Park. It felt like for like a three-year stretch between like 15 and like 17. Yeah. That was the most gratifying single uh, type of game that the Mets would have because it just felt so good for them to beat on those Phillies. It felt like payback that we were good, they weren't, and we were letting them have it on their ballpark pretty much every series that they went down there. Yeah. It just felt Almost so all of them. Anyways, Jack, I think we are pretty much out of time today. This was fun. So, this was really fun. This was great. And, you know, we look forward to bringing you Mets fans some good content moving forward here on the Pleasant Good Evening podcast. And for the first episode, I'm pretty much willing to call this a pretty solid, resounding success. I had fun. I know you had fun. We hit some really good topics. And for episode one, I think we're ready to sign off. So for Jack Hendon, my name is Sam Lovowitz. This has been the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. And Mets fans, have a pleasant good evening.